I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. The episode. Oh, JJ, you gave away the diagnosis. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I can edit it out. (laughs) We can put a beep. Leave this part in and then irritatingly make people wait 20 minutes to get to the diagnosis. Uh, Okay, so JJ is going to present a case for us. The case is presented anonymously. Some of the identifying details that would not affect the clinical outcome of the case have been withheld or changed to protect the identity of the veterinarian, the owner, the pet, and the geographic location. All that stuff is concealed because we want people to send us stories yes and not be afraid to so it's a safe place it is a safe place so jj is going to present a story for us okay so we have a 16 week old male intact pitiable mix oh a bully okay pibble it was adopted from a rescue group about four weeks before it came in um the owner reports that it has had all its shots mm-hmm. from the rescue group mm-hmm. and uh, has not been to see a veterinarian since adoption. Okay. No previous paperwork or medical history is available. That gives me anxiety. Yeah. Okay. It's not, not ideal. Okay. Um, the poor baby has not eaten for three days. It's been having diarrhea for two days. Okay. It has had two episodes of vomiting, one about an hour before it came in and then again in the car on the way to the clinic. So gross. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, car vomit's never fun. Okay, what are we seeing on the physical exam there? Mucous membranes were pale, pink, and dry, so probably a little dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Abdomen was painful upon palpation, and the puppy was depressed, uh, just laid on the table. It would wag its tail, but does not want to eat any goodies or mm. doesn't want to play during the exam. No, I don't like that at all. Yeah, uh, temperature was 98 degrees. Oh, I also so super hate that. Not cool. Okay. Oh, we got to come up, yeah, with our differentials. So right out the gate, what you think? Elephant in the room. Uh, uh-huh. Parvovirus has to be, I think, at the top of the list. We yep. have a report from the owner that the pet, quote, had all its shots. Usually owners have absolutely no idea what they're talking about when it comes to that. I am I mean, I hate to be that blunt about it, but that's where we're at. Yes, that's the mm-hmm. gospel truth, though. Yeah, and then we don't come with paperwork e- either. So, like, gosh, that's a tough one. So we got to we'll call it a very questionable vaccination history. Yeah, more than likely, mm-hmm. it had one vaccine by the rescue group, yeah, and that's or two. it. I mean, and it, say the owner got it four weeks ago. It's just now sixteen weeks. That means that it you know hasn't had any vet care in the meantime. That means its last shot was before sixteen weeks, which we'll get into later. But that's mm-hmm. uh, no matter how many shots it had before then. Like some people think it's like a oh, there's a magic number of shots, but it's the timing that's important, mm-hmm. and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But anyway, okay. So differentials, Parvo. Oh mm-hmm. boy, it's got to be at the very top of the list, I think. And then yeah. The other thing I would think about, too, would be like maybe intestinal foreign body. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that's got to be on the list. Puppies are silly and they eat ridiculous crap all the time. Yes, they do. Intestinal parasites. And I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, long list of those. So we'll just keep it there. Intestinal parasites of all types. Mm-hmm. Bacterial diseases like Salmonella, E. coli, or Clostridium that create an enteritis, which just means... Mm-hmm inflammation of the intestines and then weird stuff i mean not super weird i mean it's common enough that you see it but something like an intussusception you know some other type Mm. of intestinal pathology yes also in the weird realm would be pancreatitis i don't see that yeah i see that in puppies very often you don't but there are case reports of it but like we kind of don't think about it as like a puppy disease and also pancreatitis is usually secondary to something else anyway you know so Mm -hmm. could a puppy have pancreatitis yep would i be like oh primary pancreatitis no i would be like okay it's pancreatitis plus some other thing Mm -hmm. and then canine distemper can present with gi signs i have never seen a case of distemper i have unfortunately um it's been a while back but the thing that I think about most with distemper, I mean, GI signs, sure, but the that bright green discharge that they have from their eyes and their nose, mm-hmm. and also the chewing gum seizures yeah. that they have, that's just classic. Right. Um, I've seen it at two different clinics I worked at very early in my career. It's not super common, but uh, back then it was a little more common. Uh, those are the classic symptoms. Not all puppies will have all the symptoms, but mm-hmm. I think it's further down on the list, certainly, than like something like parvo, which we see so... I mean, God, parvo is so common. I, I think of distemper as being less common, at yeah. least and where we parvo live. parvo season. Yeah. Where we live in the United States, in the Southeast, distemper is not seen nearly as mm-hmm. often as parvo. So Springtime affliction. And then maybe toxic exposure, you know, we need to kind Mm -hmm. of investigate that. So using that differential list, we have to decide some tests that we're going to do and kind of an order to do them in. Yeah, since Parvo is on the list and it's kind of high on the list because it is so infectious, um, you start to sort of have to get yourself a a plan, um, go into, you know, disease spread uh, prevention mode and um, hopefully your clinic has a protocol on infectious diseases and how to handle them. And you know which room that you want to put all your vomiting and diarrhea puppies in. And it needs to be a room that's easily cleaned. You would need to prioritize your lab work to kind of keep that uh, spread of infectious disease down. So typically uh, we would run a parvo test first. Yep. And the other reason that we choose to do this is also financially. I agree with you. I think going ahead and just testing at some of the hospitals that i have worked at there will be kind of a standing policy that even before the vet comes in on a case that Mm -hmm. meets xyz criteria um and generally it would be like puppy you know questionable vaccination history all of the symptoms that the technician is basically you know the policy is going to say like hey um, the doctor is, I can tell you right off the bat, this case meets the check marks on our checklist for running a parvo test. Um, that's something that the doctor is definitely going to want. I can go ahead and get that started while we're waiting on the doctor, if you like. That's what we strongly mm-hmm. recommend. So a lot of the times, by the time I'm seeing these guys, I mean, let's be honest, I'm profiling a little bit, but like classic parvo case, I feel like I see is like um, we're working it in. They called within an emergent thing. Mm-hmm. The, these are not, 
usually someone who's been to the clinic for all of their puppy shot. I mean, maybe that happens, but in my experience, it's like lunchtime. They call. They're like, our puppy is really sick. No one else can see us today. And we're like, okay, we'll squeeze you in. So it's like a fit-in type situation. So anyway, by the time I get to the exam room many times, they're going to already be like, is Parvo, here's the test by, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Depending on your individual state and, and yada, 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 all those things check into the legality. But in most places, you would be able to come up with some sort of a policy that makes things more streamlined than that. So I agree with going ahead and just running the Parvo test before you do anything else. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't recommend other testing in addition, even if the test is positive. There's other stuff we need to know if it's a positive test, but it gives us a jumping off point. Whether they're parvo positive or negative, if the client is definitely one to treat, the next step would be doing a full chemistry CBC with electrolytes, intestinal parasite screen, and probably depending on those results, maybe adding abdominal radiographs as well. I think that those are the types of tests that you're looking at for sure if we're trying to work the case up fully. Do we need abdominal rads if the test comes out positive for parvo? I think that's debatable, but I would still end on the yes category because I've seen Mm -hmm. parvo dogs that also have an intestinal foreign body. Yay. So like, sometimes I got more than one thing. But so anyway, for this case, I think that's a good set of things. Parvo test, screen for intestinal parasites with a fecal test for intestinal parasites. Hopefully that's going to be with centrifugation, as we discussed in our second episode, full blood work. And then x-rays of the abdomen. I think that's a good, I think it's a good place to start. So what did we find in this case? So our parvo ELISA test was negative. Okay. No intestinal parasites. Mm-hmm. Those are both a little surprising. Okay. Um, chemistry test was completely normal. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, in this case, the chemistry profile is normal. There's not a note uh, here from the veterinarian about the albumin level. But say the albumin was in the reference range, but it's like low normal. Mm, I don't love that, you know, especially in a puppy that's this clinically dehydrated, you know, like. Mm-hmm. I, uh, so I would say chemistry looks normal. Like sometimes you glance down it and you're like, no reds moving on. But the albumin, we need to zero in on that guy and be like, literally, what is the number? Okay, how close is it to the bottom of the reference interval? Sometimes they'll the reference interval on, especially on in-house lab work, for some reason, will be like way lower than appropriate. I don't know. I've noticed (laughs) that. Like, I'm like, what? Like, (laughs) what are you guys doing with this reference interval? Like, no, this is not an okay (laughs) number. So anyway, uh, if that albumin is edging on towards two, like, uh-uh, this is something, we got a problem. So anyway, mm-hmm. okay. okay. What else do we find? Our, we have uh, our CBC results where we have a leukopenia and severe neutropenia. Oh, no. Um, uh, there was uh, 1,275 neutrophils per microliter. Okay. Yeah, so leukopenia, that just means low white blood cells. And the neutropenia, that means low neutrophils, a type of white blood cell, that level of neutropenia is like, I mean, that's very low. That's lower than like the cutoff for administering chemotherapy to a cancer patient. I mean, low, low, low. That's like needs prophylactic antibiotic level of low uh, if we're treating um, 
cancer mm-hmm. with chemo. So like, holy monkeys, this is a low neutrophil count. <laughs> so then we have to think about, okay, why are the neutrophils low? What are the reasons? And in general, we have to think about neutrophils aren't being made. So there's just not enough of them. They're being depleted or destroyed somehow. So the body is sending them somewhere and they're being used up. So those would be the two things that we have to think about on that front. So Interesting. Okay, what else are we finding? We had a low red blood cell count, hematocrits 29%, which is in the normal range yeah. for dogs for that age. Okay, that's an important point there. So on puppies, um, puppies have a lower red blood cell count, like absolute count, and then also percentage of red blood cells, as in like a hematocrit or PCV, mm-hmm. than adult dogs in Reference intervals on lab work are based on usually adult dogs. So mm-hmm. um, it's important to get out your ClinPath book and take a look at they actually have a table with age ranges for dogs saying like X age, you should see Y results, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's always important to get that table out and take a look and see is the hematocrit appropriate for this age of a puppy? And the answer to that question is yes, 29% would be in the normal range for a puppy, you know, in this age range. Just important to note, this puppy is not, quote, anemic necessarily, even though the the numbers on the page are red. This is, uh, it's a puppy and it's just outside of the reference interval for adult dogs. Yes. The radiographs of the abdomen were normal. Okay. So we didn't see any evidence of like a foreign object or something like that. So nothing like that. Okay, this is a tough one. And we're going to talk about some of these findings here in a little bit. But go ahead and share how how did the case turn out? Uh, So they opted to go ahead and just treat with supportive care, hospitalize the patient. uh, But unfortunately, the patient did pass away overnight. With a temperature of 98 degrees. I mean, we, we had a lot of bad stuff, a lot of red flags going on. Yeah. Um, this this was going to be very difficult, I think, to manage this case six, with a non-lethal outcome. I mean, possible, but like things are rough. So, okay. Yeah. The owner did uh, opt for necropsy. So okay. histopath findings were um, intestinal crypt necrosis, mm-hmm. shortened intestinal villi, okay. hemorrhagic enteritis. And intranuclear viral inclusion bodies were found. Okay. We have a diagnosis of parvoviral enteritis. Oh, dear. Yeah. So um, in this case, the fecal ELISA test, we have basically a, a false negative there because that mm-hmm. that histopath finding, the intranuclear viral inclusion bodies, those are pathognomonic, which means like nothing else causes that. So it's definitely parvo. The veterinarian that... Um, wrote about this case, did say, you know, that they felt like, well, it's not parvo because there was a negative antigen test and that they felt very concerned that they failed to recognize this, you know, as being a parvo case. And they fretted and worried that, you know, somehow their inability to recognize that it was a parvo case had affected the outcome and that if they had you know, if they had diagnosed it as parvo, that maybe the dog would have not passed away. Well, I mean, anytime you lose a patient, it's difficult. Oh, yeah. Especially when you feel like maybe an outcome might have been different if you had all the correct answers. Because, I mean, a lot of people trust those tests as black and white. But, yeah. I mean, realistically, what would you have done differently to treat 
other than the supportive care. Nothing. I mean, I think you're exactly right. Parvo doesn't have a cure. You know, it's just Mm. treatment with supportive care is appropriate for a Parvo dog. And, you know, that supportive care has to be aggressive anytime you have a patient come in the way that this one did. You know, a pit bull puppy laying on the table wagging its tail with a temperature of 90 degrees or 98 degrees. Like, uh... (laughs) No matter what is the underlying cause, like that puppy is sick as hell and has Mm -hmm. what I would consider to be a guarded prognosis because it takes a lot for a pit bull puppy to be all mill. And I just thump Mm -hmm. my tail when I when you pet me like normally they're like kiss monsters, you know, so Mm -hmm. I just want to say like to the veterinarian that saw this case, this is not your fault. It's not. And say the test had been positive. Like, I don't know that that changes the outcome. Mm -mm. And although I can understand those feelings, veterinarians in general have a major problem with being perfectionists and really beating ourselves up if we don't get everything exactly right. But especially in this type of case, like, I don't think that looking at the case and saying, bam, it's parvo would have changed the outcome dramatically. I don't. And Mm -hmm. even if things could have gone differently, shit happens. You can't be perfect. It's medicine, which is messy. And people, I think, like the general public kind of thinks of medicine as like some sort of, as you were saying, black and white, cookie cutter, Mm -hmm. like this always means this and this always means this. And if you don't do this, then you're bad at what you do and everything. And like, it's just not a realistic situation. That's not the reality. Um, It's complicated. It's so complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that judging ourselves, being really overly hard on ourselves, judging ourselves or judging other people that are, you know, trying to help these cases like that, that's not helpful. And we really need to move away from that as a profession. It's always a good idea if you're unsure as to why someone made a decision about something, you can always ask. Yeah. But that needs to come from a place of learning and not a place of trying to put someone down. Right. Um, I'm not saying that every veterinarian out there is perfect and it doesn't do any good for other veterinarians to badmouth each other or, oh, it's easy to be the Monday morning quarterback. Um, you say, well, I would have done this case differently if I had it. And right. I mean, and it's not helpful for the staff to do that either. I mean, I do think that experience is a very important part of this. So say you're, and I think we've all witnessed these scenarios, say you're maybe a staff member or a veterinarian who is very experienced and maybe a less experienced veterinarian is handling a case and you see them doing things differently than you would. I think historically, the thing that I've seen happen the most, and this has been from my veterinary school clinical experience all the way up through every single job that I've ever worked, every clinic that I've relieved at. Sometimes when we see people making choices medically that would be different, it's like somehow there's not you're not allowed to or you feel like you're not allowed to just be like, hey, um, I might have handled that differently. Can we talk about the case and like kind of come to an understanding about things You know, maybe especially if you're not a veterinarian, but a support staff member, there's that weird dynamic of like a power thing between like, well, but they're Mm -hmm. the vet, you know, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they're a new vet and they're trying to kind of prove themselves and you don't want to second guess them. Like, I mean, I get all that. It's a complex interaction. But 
I think that we all need to move toward being open and honest. And there are ways to have that type of conversation without being a jerk face about it <laughs> on either yes. end. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I exactly. I mean, I feel like, you know, cases should be a, a collaborative yeah. thing yeah. between all the doctors, especially if they're going to have any hands on the case or communication with the client, but also include your medical staff mm-hmm. um, so that they can learn, especially oh, if they're new. And also, like, can I tell you how many times, especially early in my career, but hell, even now, I mean, because I am not a perfect individual. No one is. How many times technicians have saved my ass as far as like, <laughs> oh, boy, I totally didn't think about that. And then they're like. Um, have you, like, Dr. Grider, did you want to order some, I don't know, pain control? And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, Or, like, did you think about maybe running a CBC on this one? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, we probably should do that. You know, like, um, yeah, it happens to there's... everybody. It is just like a normal human thing that happens. Yeah, it is. I mean. And there's a right way to handle that, too. I mean, we're working as a team Mm -hmm. and maybe you forgot something that should maybe be added. So you gently ask them or suggest, like you said, instead of like, "Um, don't you think you want to do blah? Mm -hmm. And in the same thing is if there's something that, you know, you've missed and the doctor notices it, they can do the same. I mean, it should just be a respectful relationship. Sometimes even administrators will make rules like, I mean, I've seen people get written up before for, quote, questioning the doctor when when the technical staff member was simply trying to, like, make sure that something egregious didn't continue to happen. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet in bringing it up, nothing happened other than that that person got written up, you know, so like we have to change that. That is not cool. Like you. mm -mm. We have to foster open communication because it, I mean, it leads to grief, fear, shame, anger, all of the bad stuff that is not healthy and is not helpful in any way. And it for sure contributes to things like burnout, to things like substance abuse, probably to the high suicide rate, too. If we can't have these open and honest discussions at work, which is where we spend the most time out of any other place statistically right Mm -hmm. then you have to have a good work environment or else that i mean that's super unhealthy so like yes anyway um we probably have been on this topic a little bit longer than we should have in we could probably be a whole i think (laughs) lots of other episodes you know yes at any rate, which I think is we definitely will do because it is it's a super important topic and and multifaceted so Mm -hmm. We're going to go into an overview of parvovirus, but we'll pick this discussion up in other episodes and maybe even have like a whole regular episode where we don't present a case, but we talk about strategies to help with like clinic culture and just development of that vulnerability that you need to be able to grow as a team. Um, Maybe have. I mean, I would pay for a CE class on that. So, okay. We're going to plan an episode like that. So I'm going to talk to you about parvovirus. What we call parvovirus uh, in puppies, this is the um, vomiting, diarrhea, not eating, shitstorm situation, okay, that everybody calls parvo. Literally. So it's actually canine parvovirus type 2, which I didn't know until I started researching this episode. I probably have been taught it at one point. Did I remember it? No, I sure did not. So I didn't either. Yeah. I learned. There's a canine parvovirus type 1. 
That is not going to be what we're talking about. It's a completely different clinical syndrome, okay? When people say, quote, parvo for, for puppies, they mean parvovirus type 2. Now, there are several strains, but when we're talking about parvovirus, we're talking about canine parvovirus type 2 or CPV2. And the strains are A, B, and C. It's an unenveloped DNA virus, and it targets rapidly dividing cells in the body. So when we think about cells that turn over quickly, GI tract and bone marrow, those are right up there. So that's where this guy attacks. So the virus starts replicating in the lymphoid tissues of the oropharynx, thymus, and mesenteric lymph nodes. Then it moves to the bone marrow and the germinal epithelium of the intestinal crypts. The virus destroys the intestinal epithelium. It creates these short, collapsed, and necrotic, which just means kind of like rotting, intestinal uh, villi. So instead of the nice, big, proud villi, which which are like, we'll call them like hills inside the intestines, they become all short and they don't work as well. That damage creates the ability for bacteria to translocate or move from the gut into the bloodstream. Now, at the same time, the virus is attacking the bone marrow, and the virus destroys the white blood cell precursors, so those are the cells that will eventually become white blood cells, and it affects the production of both lymphocytes and neutrophils. And there's why we have our low white count. Exactly. If the puppy is young enough, this also affects the heart. So puppies that contract parvo in utero or when they're less than six weeks old Because the heart is full of rapidly dividing cells during that time period, they can get a myocarditis, which just means inflammation of the heart muscle. And then some rare symptoms that I've never encountered with parvo are neurologic signs and skin lesions. Hmm. Essentially, the virus attacks the GI tract and bone marrow at the same time, which creates a perfect setup for sepsis to develop. Sepsis is overwhelming infection in the whole body like Uh, People call it blood poisoning or bacteria in the bloodstream. Canine parvovirus type 2 is one of the most common infectious causes of diarrhea in dogs. It's extremely stable in the environment. There's a fecal-oral route of transmission, which means that basically you have to eat poop particles, like viral poop particles, um, to uh, contract the virus. Which, what do puppies do? Yeah, they just uh, just poo everywhere all the time. (laughs) It's just Dancing it and lick their feet. Gross. So fomites are a major concern. So fomite would be an inanimate object that gets contaminated that then the puppy has contact with. And viral particles remain infectious for months to years. And it's hard to get rid of. So Mm -hmm. most infected patients that we see are less than six months of age. But completely naive, unvaccinated dogs of any age can contract the virus. Nevertheless, it's uncommon in adult dogs. Not impossible, but uncommon. There are some strong breed predispositions, and those include Rottweilers, Doberman Pinschers, Labrador Retrievers, American Staffordshire Terriers, a.k.a. Pitbulls, and then the Arctic Sled Breeds. And then in one study, purebred dogs in general were at a higher risk than mixed breed dogs in general. Interesting. Yeah. The incubation period is 7 to 14 days. One common thing that I hear from like owners or like the rescue group or the breeder is like, well, where did they catch it? When did they catch it? Because they kind of want to like somehow prove that the puppy couldn't have gotten it, quote, from them. And I that frustrates me because I'm like, it doesn't matter. Parvo Mm -hmm. is ubiquitous in the environment, meaning everywhere it's extremely stable. 
just vaccinate your puppies. Um, then we don't have to worry about where it comes from. <laughs> anyway, so the clinical signs, I'm sorry. I have to say, like, before we get further into this, that Parvo is one of my least favorite things of all time. So it's like, it might be number one on the list of things that I hate so much. Like, if I could pick any one disease to absolutely never have to see again, it would be Parvo. And that's, yeah. like, actually possible because it's vaccine preventable. What the hell? You know? Like, I know, right? So it is. It's like the perfect storm of it smells terrible. Mm. The poor puppies are miserable. God, it's are. puppies. Oh, man. I mean, nobody wants to see a sick baby. They're pitiful. They don't know why they are so sick. And you can throw everything you have at them and they could still die. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. no guarantees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, oh, man, I hate it so much. It's the smelliness. It's hot. Mm-hmm. Like when I think of managing a parvo case, I think about being hot, sweaty in a stuffy room with disgusting, gross smells, a super nice puppy that is just sick as shit. And you're trying everything and there's nothing else you can do except wait. It, it sucks mm-hmm. so bad. It is the yeah. worst. I hate parvo. Oh my God, I hate parvo so much. <laughs> if I could like, Go across the countryside, sprinkling everything with Parva vaccine. I would, but that won't work. But like for real, mm. like holy monkeys. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, JJ, what are the clinical signs of parvovirus? Lethargy, vomiting, diarrhea, usually bloody diarrhea mm-hmm. that it's got a certain smell and it's not pleasant. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, inappetence to anorexia. Uh, which just means either no appetite or light appetite, dehydration, fever, abdominal pain, uh, dyspnea. Sometimes they uh, will develop a pulmonary edema or uh, they'll have uh, aspiration pneumonia from vomiting, collapse, shock, seizures. So sometimes you'll see signs of bleeding disorders um, like petechia or ecchymosis, which is just some bruising or uh, signs of blood under the skin and of course sadly death yeah yeah anytime you're taking one of these guys into the hospital you want to make sure you go through a cpr versus dnr form with the owner because parvo puppies crash sometimes and mm-hmm. um, if you haven't had that discussion already then we're wasting time like getting the owner on the phone and everything like that so death is always a possible outcome even if they're coming in not looking as sick For me, I don't think that I can really give a clinical correlation in my mind between like the parvo puppies that come in that are like, yeah, this one's looking like not so bad to the ones that look like death warmed over. Sometimes the ones that look better die and the ones that look terrible are like, hey, I'm I'm fine. You know, there's no predicting. it. Yeah. So like, yeah, we want to get a CPR DNR form. Okay, JJ is going to talk to us about our typical laboratory findings for a pet with parvo. Many, many types of abnormalities can occur, but uh, the most common is the uh, leukopenia or low white count. Uh, Something you can do is if the owner can't afford a CBC, but you suspect parvo, but the test is negative, do a blood smear and look for white blood cells. You can uh, often do like a little quick estimate. I mean, people that are familiar with blood smears can look at several fields and be like, hmm, I don't really see a whole lot of white blood cells and I really don't see I mean the most numerous of the white blood cells is going to be neutrophils and if you don't see a lot of those you definitely know something's something's yeah. up. Yeah. If we're 
in it just to kind of go back to the case for just a minute in this particular patient we have a puppy with all of the symptoms and a negative parvo antigen test but the puppy also had a leukopenia it's important to remember that a negative parvo antigen fecal test and we're going to talk about this in a minute it doesn't rule out parvovirus And Mm -hmm. so if you're seeing clinical signs in a low white blood cell count, it's parvo until proven otherwise. Now, there are other things it could be. So other ways that the body is using the leukocytes, it could be some sort of a weird abscess. It could be like a perforated foreign object, you know, ingestion type of situation. But like if you've reasonably ruled out a foreign object, the x-rays look clean and you still have a puppy with these signs and you still have a puppy with leukopenia, we, it needs to be parvo until proven otherwise and get that guy uh, an ultrasound, I think, too. I mean, mm-hmm. if we can. Uh, more findings. Yeah. Um, hypoproteinemia. Mm-hmm. So you were asking earlier, you know, how would that happen? And it's a combo. So decreased protein intake. But probably the big one is protein loss through the GI tract because we're vomiting. We've got diarrhea and our, our GI tract like flipping just isn't working right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's expelling all the things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one, hypoglycemia. Of course, if there's no food coming in, mm-hmm. then we're going to drop that blood sugar. Yeah. And we don't have the greatest like liver development in some of these little bitty babies yet. Mm-hmm. So they might have, you know, glycogen stores are either depleted completely or they don't, you know, hold a lot to begin with. Hypokalemia, which is low potassium from increased GI loss and decreased intake. Mm-hmm hypochloremia, which is low chloride, and hyponitremia, which is low sodium from GI losses. So there is one major option for point-of-care testing for dogs with this issue. Uh, That's the fecal antigen ELISA test. It detects a protein found on the surface of the virus. Generally, it's a great test. So the test is highly specific, but less sensitive. Yeah. What that means is we're going to expect some false negatives, False positives do occur, but they happen less frequently than false negatives. Yeah. So what would be some reasons that we could see false negative uh, results? Um, so early in the disease when the virus shedding is low would be one. Yep. Or if the test is performed more than 10 days after infection. Okay. Also, binding of uh, canine parvovirus neutralizing antibodies or the maternal antibodies with antigen in the feces. If you have maternal antibodies still circulating, they're grabbing the virus and binding it. Even though the pet's sick from it and having clinical signs, then it it reduces your ability for the test to turn positive. Which, given our age, would also be something to consider, I think. Yeah, I mean, some puppies have maternal antibodies at 16 weeks, which is why, well, we'll get to vaccine recommendations here in mm-hmm. a minute. But, you know, but yes, I agree. Um, so low shedding of the virus And this is very interesting because in the IDEX frequently asked question area about this particular test, if you do, after you uh, you collect your sample, you put it back into the, the, the container tube and you break that seal to so you can squeeze the bulb to mix. Uh, if you do it more than three times, then the sample and the conjugate are uh, incubated together for too long. And that can give you a possible false negative. Until I read that FAQ, that is the first time I have ever heard that information. So 
now I'm having anxiety about like, how, you know, when I do it before, do I just do it three times? I don't think I do. I think I do it five times. So now I got to remember to just do it three times. I mean, along those lines in reading that FAQ, the other thing was it specifically says, do not place the swab into the rectum. It was like test feces, do not perform a rectal swab. And I'm like, what? Like I, that, rectal swab yeah. is literally the only way I've ever done it. It's the way I was that trained. That is crazy. Um, and I did reach out to IDEX for some clarification about this, and they responded saying that they were going to have to forward that like higher up the chain and would get back to me. We might have to fill that in on another episode, <laughs> but so that's where we're at. Everybody read the package insert and read the FAQ. Anyway, false positives aren't as common as false negative results, but they can occur. And it's a little bit of a controversy. So in the past, say in the 1990s and early 2000s. Specifically, IDEX's actual documentation said you can get a false positive in a recently vaccinated dog. But now it doesn't say that. And then the FAQ specifically addresses this scenario. Basically, it says that the most recent study performed shows that dogs don't develop a false positive with a modified live virus vaccine. And that study was performed at the University of Wisconsin, and that's what's listed in the promotional materials as of like right now, May 2020. Hmm. It is important to remember that previous studies had shown that it could come out as a false positive, and these were light color changes. They weren't like your navy blue, you know, or like Mm -hmm. popping up turquoise before the (laughs) sample even finishes going across the screen or whatever. But It's not screaming, Parvo. It's more like Parvo. Right. It's not impossible to have a false positive, but like Mm -hmm. most of the time, positive ones are, you know, positive. Okay, so there are a couple of other tests. Uh, There's the PCR test. Mm -hmm. Um, PCR means polymerase chain reaction. Um, It's performed on feces, blood, or tissues. Uh, It detects parvovirus DNA. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's more sensitive than ELISA test, so you get less false negatives. You can detect canine parvovirus DNA up to 28 days following vaccine with modified live virus vaccine, but viral loads will be low. Yeah, so you can, it sounds like, get a false positive on this test with recent vaccination. Mm -hmm. Also, the PCR, I mean, it takes some time to come back to, Mm -hmm. it has its place, but, like, there are no perfect tests. No, correct me if I'm wrong, but most cases, the PCR tests are more expensive than your ELISA tests. That one is $3 signs instead of two. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then there's one last type of uh, testing that we can do, but we don't really use it usually to diagnose parvo. It's more to check for the level of antibodies to determine whether a pet is like protected and has adequate vaccination. And that's the immunofluorescent antibody or IFA test. Mm. Yeah. So for parvo, you know, we talked before about how there's no cure, uh, but there are some specific categories of management of the cases that we should go over just in general, how do we manage a parvo case and what are the types of therapies that we're going to be looking at providing for the patient to try to help them fight this off? Right out of the gate, we need to talk about two types of treatments that have been talked up quite a bit in the past, but have not been shown to be effective, okay? And those are hyperimmune serum and antiviral therapy with the drug Tamiflu. So, These got a lot of lip service, especially, I think, back when I was in veterinary school. So 
like we'll say circa 2008, you know, mm. and there was actually like a Tamiflu study going on. I remember at the vet school, like while I was there. So everybody thought like, yeah, this is going to be great. But unfortunately, studies on these types of therapies have shown no improvement in the clinical outcome. And mm. with Tamiflu in particular, it's expensive and also a drug that we use for humans. And so since we really need to try to save Tamiflu for flu patients. Mm. Yeah. If it were like a parvo miracle drug, then that would be different, but it's not. So I I don't recommend using it because we need to try to save it for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as therapy goes, though, care is supportive. So we're talking about, in general, trying to focus on the goals of undoing the things that the virus or the body's response to the virus is doing. So we need to keep the patient hydrated, keep the electrolytes balanced. We need to control low blood sugar events. We need to treat secondary bacterial infection. We need to treat these guys for pain because they feel terrible. Mm -hmm. We got to control that vomiting. We need to provide some nutritional support. And then we've got to treat any secondary complications that come up like low protein, like multi-system inflammatory syndrome, like DIC. Okay. Mm -hmm. All of those sorts of things. And we could probably have three episodes about parvotherapy. So (laughs) there are also a lot of varying opinions about the best strategies to use, right? Anytime you're symptomatically managing a disease, there's not going to be one right gold star answer of this is the thing. So it's important that there's a range of ways to manage parvovirus. We're going to go over kind of the high points of that right now and follow up with some additional things in later episodes. The first one is fluid therapy. This is, without a doubt, the most important part of treatment. So these guys have to get well hydrated. And we're going to use crystalloid therapy IV. It's really needed in in all cases, okay? Even, and we're going to, again, visit this in another episode, but even the, the famous, like, often quoted outpatient parvo treatment study, if you read the study, they treated those guys in the hospital with IV fluids first, and a lot of people don't know that. So we're going to go over that in, in the next episode. We're going to dive into home treatment. But So IV fluid therapy is super important. Some of these guys might need colloids, which is kind of like a protein-containing fluid. Mm. Uh, but if you use these, you got to watch out really carefully that we don't volume overload our patients and have them start third spacing on us. So uh, third spacing means... Fluid is accumulating in potential spaces, like the area between the lungs and the body wall or in the abdomen. These guides need to have electrolytes supplemented. Most need potassium. There is a handy chart in all ER books or on VIN that shows you the amount of potassium that you need to add, specifically in the form of potassium chloride or KCL. And it's like, here is the potassium measurement in the blood. Here is (laughs) uh, what we're going to add to the fluids. And then we want to make sure that we don't give the potassium too quickly. We never want to exceed a rate of 0.5 milliequivalents per kilogram of body weight per hour. So we always want to double check that. To control hypoglycemia, if our blood sugar is less than 60, that guy needs a dextrose bolus. Otherwise, we can give it as a CRI. Okay, We can also provide some nutritional support, which we're going to get to in just a minute. Antibiotic therapy, believe it or not, is a debated topic in the treatment of parvovirus. So some people say we should only be giving antibiotics when the patient is severely neutropenic. 
Some people start them right away. There are people that are in the middle. I mean, if you go on Vin or you start this debate with someone, you're going to get some hot opinions about it. (laughs) What I'll say is what I do, what I do is I start antibiotics because it's rare that I see a case of Parvo where the dog's like doing super great and has fine amounts of neutrophils. Like (laughs) most of them are circling the drain. And then, so while it's controversial when to start, I think that we can all agree that for sure, if the pet's neutrophils are low, they need to be on antibiotics, okay? But many people start them before that point because they anticipate it. And when the bottom falls out on these guys, it falls out fast. There's a lot of opinions. Mm. Which antibiotics are we going to use? Also, a matter of hotly debated (laughs) opinion. (laughs) But in general, okay, when we talk to specialists about this, Common choices include drugs like ampicillin, cefazolin, and unison, okay? Now, some people advocate for adding enrofloxacin for, like, full-spectrum coverage, but other people say, well, yeah, you know, we can get the cartilage damage. Is this the best thing? Plus, it's a big gun antibiotic. Are we contributing to resistance? And other people are like, well, if we don't do it and they die, does that really contribute to resistance? Because they're dead, right? So it's just like... <laughs> Again, what specialists kind of agree on is that enrofloxacin or Batril is probably not a good choice for soul therapy. We want to go to one of the other ones if we're just trying to use one antibiotic. And then aminoglycosides like amicacin technically have a really good spectrum of activity. I know of some people that use these in parvo dogs, but because of the systemic side effects of these drugs, you can't use them in dehydrated or hypovolemic patients. And all of the patients I've ever seen with parvo are super dehydrated. Mm-hmm. So I'm terrified to use it. I know that some people do use it and have success with it. It's just not my jam. Antiemetic therapy, this is going to be preventing nausea, vomiting. We've got several key drugs to look at on Dancitron, which is Zofran, Dilazitron, a related drug, Meribitant, which is Serenia, and Metaclopramide or Reglin. I love Serenia. It's my friend. You can use Serenia in parvo dogs. Like when it first came out, people were super nervous about using it in puppies. I do it all the time. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Super fine. It'll be fine. And most of the time, I find that parvo dogs need more than one antiemetic. Like, mm-hmm. They do. So you can use combinations. So don't be afraid to give the dog Serenia Q24 hours and have it on a metoclopramide CRI. You know, you can similarly use Ondansetron and metoclopramide CRI at the same time. I don't know if you can use all three. If a pharmacologist is listening to this episode, like, (laughs) let me know. (laughs) And I will update the episode. But, um... We never want to forget to deworm these patients. And we talked about that a little bit in um, the whipworm episode, like the the mini-sode for it. So we got to find a way to get these guys dewormed because if you have parvo and then you also have intestinal parasites, like that's an even bigger hurdle that we've got to get over. And Mm -hmm. giving something orally, probably not super effective. We want to use something injectable like a high-dose ivermectin, but you got to be cautious about your herding breeds. Uh, because a high dose of ivermectin is unsafe for dogs with the MDR1 mutation. And the other option would be to use something like a topical moxidectin. That's Advantage Multi. Just put it on the back of the neck and it should remove the major parasites, the big three. Mm-hmm. Analgesic therapy is often overlooked in parvo patients, but super important. These guys are painful. And so some of the most common recommendations for that, for pain control for these guys, would be to do either a fentanyl or morphine CRI 
or to use buprenorphine on a PRN basis, like every every six hours, every four hours, every eight hours, something like that, depending on their need. I was thinking about past cases, and I, I can remember recent cases that buprenorphine was being used. And I was thinking, you know, why not doing like a fentanyl or a morphine? Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things that kind of worries me is, I mean, these patients are going to be in isolation rooms, which is often far from the treatment area and not, I mean, you have nurses checking in on the part of a patient's quite often, but there are times when they're not supervised. So having fentanyl or morphine, even in a CRI form, uh, addicts, man, you got to watch out because uh, dogs take a, a, a lot larger dose of fentanyl than people do. And I've heard some lovely horror stories where mm. people will unplug the dog with the fentanyl and plug themselves in and die. Oh my God. So, um, huh, I mean, <laughs> okay. <sighs> I don't yeah, know if that's so, something to be included, but ew. Yeah. I mean, I super agree that we have to be careful with those controlled substances and the, I, <laughs> the, also the, the fact that pets are in isolation and they might, you know, all of those things are things that we really need to, look closely at and say like I know we've always done it xyz way is that still the best way you know what what can we rationalize what can we improve what's reasonable you know yeah it almost makes you want to have like a, a camera or a motion something that goes off I mean gosh if you have a, something in isolation gosh it really needs a nurse just dedicated to it mm-hmm. I mean I I, the only reason I hate to say that is that I understand the socioeconomic side of Parvo, which we're going to, again, cover more in the next episode. And when I make statements like XYZ is the best choice medically, it's not my intention to alienate people who maybe have a small staff, live in a rural area, live in an area that serves clients that are less socioeconomically advantaged, Uh I mean, whatever the case may be, you know, like I I get it. You've got what you've got and you work with what you work with. I do think clients need to be aware of the range of options that exist for managing these cases. And you need to be super upfront about the situation. Like Mm -hmm. transparency and full disclosure is like necessary. But anyway, pain control for these guys, however we can accomplish it. I'll say I tend to use buprenorphine not because I think fentanyl or morphine are bad or I'm I'm honestly not even that worried about diversion, but just because it's usually what clinics have. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised the number of clinics that refuse to get mu agonists. Yeah, or can't get them. Well, I don't know how, how they can't. Uh, well, there was the... Oh, that drug shortage thing. Yeah, right. that's been like, I mean, that's been years ago now. But anyway, you're right. Like, we did go through a prolonged period of not being able to get opiates. So, uh, like, you could not. They were on back order. There was none to be had. So anyway, one important aspect of managing parvo cases that I struggle with is the idea of nutritional therapy. Because we have studies that firmly show that early feeding in these cases is beneficial. Patients that receive nutrition within 12 hours of admission through a nasoesophageal feeding tube in one study gained weight faster, stopped vomiting sooner, stopped diarrhea sooner, the appetite returned sooner, and this was compared to a study group um, that was not fed until the vomiting had stopped for 12 hours. Okay, so... 
like in every measurable way, then the pet was doing clinically better with when it got feeded 12 hours. <laughs> what now? You said when it got feeded. I just, you know, I, just, I do what I want. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, uh, I was like, do I say something about that? No, you, you can so say something. So you could do a, another line or do I yeah. l- let well, you find now- it later? <laughs> Now I don't know where it was, I'm so sorry. I'll probably just leave in the part about you correcting me and say me saying I do what I want. <laughs> like, it'll be fine. I'll see how it plays out. If not, I can record the word fed into the <laughs> microphone and it'll be fine. Okay. Fed. Here we go. So um, feeding these puppies, though, um, really requires the use of some sort of a feeding tube. And that's not without risk. So the risks include things like improper tube placement, dislodgement of the tube, especially, you know, if we're vomiting, the tube could migrate. And these guys really need, like, if you have a pet on a feeding tube, that is not a set it and forget it situation. Those guys have to be directly monitored all the time because you know what puppies do? They, like, smack their face, pull their tube out, they dislodge it. They, like, you know, do all kind of crazy stuff. It makes me feel nervous, okay? Nasogastric tube, so that's from the uh, ventral nasal meatus down into the esophagus, through the esophagus and into the stomach, seems to be the preferred choice of multiple specialists because you can suction off the gastric residuals and it will decrease things like regurge, um, and then you can trickle feed them. Mm-hmm. Nasogastric and nasoesophageal tubes don't require anesthesia to place, so that's a bonus. Mm-hmm. I super don't like the idea of putting a sick parva dog under anesthesia. No. That's just not my jam. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but some people flip and do it. I don't know. Like, <laughs> But it, for me, it would create too much anxiety, I think. One thing that I would um, definitely have to, to overcome is there is a client perception that feeding tubes are, quote, bad. Getting clients to accept feeding tubes, I've found to be a major barrier. Like, people tend to think of feeding tubes equal, I have a relative that's not going to recover kind of thing. Does that, you know, like many people have had zero experience with feeding tubes unless they're relative has been in like a coma or something or like had some super bad thing going on. I hear the news about, you know, the people that are in like a vegetative state and being forced to stay alive and yeah and so people are like number one they're like well the pet is conscious how could you possibly talk about putting in a feeding tube because that's they think of feeding tube equals not conscious is Mm -hmm. is the common perception that i have and then they also kind of will say well if it requires a feeding tube then we need to just let them go like i've had that reaction a lot and I don't know why that is, but it's I've seen it across the board, not just in my parvo patients, but in like other types of really sick animals that that need nutrition. And so it's a whole conversation then of like, well, but they need nutrition. And so we've got to find a way to get them nutrition and, you know, all of these things. And so it's not without hurdles. Sometimes clinics might not have uh, the materials on hand or the staff familiarity that you need to be able to do this properly. So you got to have dedicated staff that are monitoring the patient and are trained in how to use feeding tubes and troubleshoot them. And just thinking about it like in, in a general private practice type setting, and I've worked at a lot of them, what percentage of general practices 
has people that have even seen feeding tubes used before in Alabama. Not many. Mm. I mean, I think. What, what do you think, JJ? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on where you are. I mean, I've worked in yeah. in more uh, rural practices where that's not super common. Mm-mm. I don't know. Every now and then a clinic will surprise you, but uh, that's yeah. that's definitely the case is that uh, which is sad because unfortunately that's also where you see more parvo patients but uh, well i was trying to find studies about geographic prevalence or that kind of thing and i couldn't find any but i agree with you my clinical observation has been that parvo tends to be regional with rural and maybe lower socioeconomic area urban populations yeah. more affected i think it, it, it like you said earlier it has a lot to do with um do you vaccinate your pet? Yeah. And there's also yeah. a little bit sometimes of a different mindset of the value of the pet to the person. Maybe. I mean, I've seen cases on ER where they're like, do everything. And I'm like, why the hell didn't you, va-? you know, like, yeah. but you've received, you've sought no veterinary care. So I think what that says then is maybe, I mean, veterinarians have to do a better job of education. Yeah. And not just the clients that walk through our door, but the, just the general public. Well, you know what the internet is like? I mean, if you just, oh, like my brain and eyes start to bleed when I read some of these <laughs> message board posts from lay people where I'm just like, oh, dear, like I can't handle yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you get to like the other spectrum of the anti-vaccine type people that, mm-hmm. you know, no vaccine in my animal at all. And I'm like, what are you basing that on? Because there's people that think about that for humans. I mean, first of all, those are two different species. And second of all, don't get me started on the human part either. But yeah, hey. I, yes, if you <laughs> if you are an avid anti-vaxxer, this is not the podcast for you. We'll just go ahead. I think we can firmly say that. Right. Um, I mean, do you, 100%. are you comfortable saying that? Okay. Yeah. Like <laughs> I am like so just- comfortable. I have my favorite blanket and some hot chocolate <laughs> and I'm taking a nap because yeah, do not send me hate mail about that statement. Just literally open the door and see yourself out. Click bye. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't the podcast for you. Okay. Anyway, back up. So, <laughs> nutritional therapy. Uh, so anyway, having the training, supplies, uh, and staff confidence needed to manage feeding tubes. Uh, that's an important question to ask. Many clinics don't transport parvo patients from the clinic to the ER and back and forth like for overnight many are left unsupervised overnight yeah so is that appropriate with a feeding tube ooh i would be I nervous worry it's not yeah especially if it were on like a pump like a, a we're trickle feeding on a pump what if they dislodge it now we're trickle feeding with no one interfering and it's like going somehow into the wrong place. Oh, mm-hmm. now the puppy's aspirated. You know, like, oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot that can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if your puppy that you're treating for parvo is in an emergency critical care setting, 24-hour hospitalization and monitoring, put a feeding tube in that sucker. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. I think the evidence is clear. But if you're in private practice, there are other considerations you got to think about before we decide whether this is the right thing for this patient. And many of them have to do with our ability to care for the tube once it's been placed. That's a tough decision. You're going to have to make it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, 
Then lastly, we ha- might have to think about using blood products for some of these patients that develop coagulopathy or if they get hypoproteinemia that's so severe that it doesn't respond to normal treatment. So fresh furs and plasma, coagulopathies, hypoproteinemia, or whole blood transfusion sometimes are needed for pets that have active hemorrhaging or if they get really severely anemic. So, JJ, yes. what is the prognosis for parvovirus in dogs? It depends on a variety of factors. Um, are there concurrent diseases? Parasitism, in a susception, foreign bodies, um, any of those that are going on at the same time is going to tank our prognosis significantly. Yep. I agree. I mean, uh, I don't really see uh, a, a happy ending going in on a foreign body surgery on a parvo positive dog. I mean, it's doable. Sometimes they do find well, and we should talk about also like occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally, pets will come in, like the one in our example, they, you know, go through their test is for parvo is negative. They're treated with supportive care. They haven't passed away, uh, but they're also not getting better. So a lot of them will end up in exploratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then parvo will be diagnosed on histopath of the intestinal biopsies. <laughs> Oops. So occasionally, like, you'll see, you know, a post on VIN, like, holy crap, I it's finally happened to me. I diagnosed parvo on biopsy. But, like, okay, you got a diagnosis? Like, yeah. but don't don't freak out. Like, so, sometimes shit happens. Like, shit happens. So anyway, what I'll say is that many of those cases then go on to do okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like... <laughs> Um, I wouldn't rule out surgery. I mean, certainly I've known of parvo dogs that uh, develop into susception secondary to the parvo, have yes. surgery to fix it and then recover. Does it, though, skyrocket the cost? Yeah. Mm-hmm. but And it affects the prognosis. It does. Yeah. Okay. But that doesn't mean that it falls to zero. Yeah. it's It doesn't, you know, mean your dog will certainly die. Um, it's just, it's a, a, a dead gum, unnecessary complication. Yeah, it is. It's super unnecessary. Thanks a lot, puppies. Um, Other things would be severity of clinical signs, um, vaccination history, uh, development of sepsis, development of bleeding disorders. Patients who survive three to four days will typically recover. Hmm. Prognosis is worse for patients who do develop a bleeding disorder or sepsis. Mm-hmm. If they have a really low lymphocyte count, 24 to 48 hours after they got to the clinic, yeah, uh, absolute lymphocyte count of less than 1,000 per microliter within 48 hours of admission is a negative prognostic indicator. Yeah. So in that same study showed that prognosis is better for patients who show an increase in the lymphocyte count 24 to 48 hours following admission when compared to their values at presentation. So if the lymphocyte count is going up, then that's more chance of recovery. If it's going down, that's less. And I didn't know that until I started researching for this episode. I tend to, I'm going to be honest, focus on the neutrophil count more than the lymphocyte count. But um, this study argues that the lymphocyte count is really important and we need to be looking at that and kind of updating the owner on prognosis based on it. But that's interesting. So... That brings us to our final topic, which is vaccination. As we've mentioned before, this is a vaccine-preventable illness. Yes. Um, For the love. Aha. Yeah, come on. (laughs) I mean, mean, okay. I mean, I get why 
I get the argument like, oh, but people is expensive or whatever. But like, you know what? Super expensive treating parvo, super expensive. And it makes me irritated. So like, please just vaccinate your dog. Oh, my God. Yeah, there's, you know, you're not supposed to judge people for things. I get that. But there's nothing that makes me more angry than someone coming in with a super expensive type breed of a dog. And it's wearing like a $30 dog collar and it has like the most expensive carrier and it's wearing a sweater and everything matches. And like, you know that they have the money that they have spent on the dog, but they didn't vaccinate it because they didn't either feel like it was important or they say, well, the vaccines are expensive. And I'm like, yeah, well, so is your Lexus. So, I mean, would you rather fluffy go through the absolute horror that is parvo or spend the money on a vaccine they're not terribly expensive they're they're, terribly important vaccinations are one dollar (laughs) sign you know i mean they are one dollar sign they're not two dollars one dollar sign anyway okay (laughs) okay so the american animal hospital association or aha does put out vaccination guidelines, and they were last updated in 2017. This is a great resource. Even if you're not an AHA clinic, this is still probably, I think, the the most comprehensive vaccination guidelines that we have. So that's what I use, whether it's an AHA clinic or not. Uh, AHA vaccination guidelines is what I like to go off of. So generally, we want to vaccinate as early as six weeks of age and continue vaccinating every two to four weeks until at least 16 weeks of age. We don't stop vaccinating before 16 weeks because of maternal antibody interference. So after the puppy reaches 16 weeks of age, we need at least one vaccination, okay? Mm -hmm. And then I feel like we have to mention vaccinations from the feed store because this is like, again, another super huge pet peeve that I have. Probably one of the reasons that I hate Parvo so much is that I spent my preceptorship in the spring before you officially graduate from veterinary school. You go out into the world and practice as a veterinarian while being closely observed by like a private practitioner. And so I went to a rural Georgia town. It was super good experience. I loved the people there. I loved the clients. I loved the pets. But dang, (laughs) they had... The most parvo that I have ever seen. Like, they had a whole parvo ward. It was terrible. And the whole time I was there, the parvo ward would be completely full. So, like, ugh, like every single time we got one out, new ones would come in. And they would call them ducks. Like, we've got a duck in room three. Meaning, it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck. Right? <laughs> it's parvo. So, that would be like, if, if they said there's a duck in room three, you knew it was like a probably going to be a parvo puppy and like holy monkeys it it was just so much and then i asked myself well like why was parvo so prevalent in that community and the answer that i have like i don't have a study that shows it but like my clinical experience tells me like it's because (laughs) the of the combination of the societal ethic there to not visit veterinarians unless your pet is sick and a combination of the societal ethic to take the absolute lowest cost thing possible, which would be feed store vaccines. Mm-hmm. And like, I also don't want to get a lot of hate mail from feed store owners. Like, okay, if you're going to provide vaccinations for people, fine. But you have to be responsible en- enough to know that vaccinations are finicky. 
you are not a veterinarian feed store owner. So don't be handing people some weird vaccine schedule that you just magically created and decided you're going to distribute. Like, number one, that's practicing without a license. So no, it's illegal. <laughs> and number two, like, you also don't know what you're talking about. So like, be so just be quiet. If you're going to offer vaccinations, they need to be like refrigerated and like handled according to the package instructions, mm -hmm. you know, and like reconstituted correctly. I can't even tell you how many times I've had someone bring in like we did the feed store vaccines and we brought all of this in to show you and it'll be like a baggie with some like labels inside of it. And then it'll be like the two vials and they've injected the diluent and the cake that actually contains the flipping vaccine was not reconstituted. Mm -hmm. So, like, they just injected the dog with saline. Yeah. They didn't, there was no instructions. It was just like two bottles that they got, syringe, God knows where they got that from. Like, so there's just so many problems here. And, and that's the classic situation I see. Yeah. So, like, I, I can just don't do it. I can think of several times that, like, you know, we would get a shipment in. I mean, most vaccines, when we order them, they're overnighted. And, You're talking about at a veterinary hospital. Right, at a veterinary clinic. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things that we feel, look for. Now, if the cold packs in the shipping boxes are completely melted and it doesn't feel cold in that boxes, we're contacting the company like, you got to take this mm -hmm. back. Oh, yeah. I don't know if the feed stores are going to do that. I know one of the clinics that I work for, it happens so often that they schedule the dates that they order around weekends and things mm -hmm. because they know if I order it today, it's not going to arrive till Saturday. Then it's going to sit in the hot Alabama sun baking until Tuesday or we're going to have to send it back. Yeah. So, like, you have to think about those things. But I think that's a great question. Do feed store people or tractor supply places or whatever, do they know that, number one? Do they have the relationship with their distributor to call and be like, yo, you sent me this, it's room temperature, send it back, and then have them take it back? Or are they going to have to eat the cost for it? You know, yeah. when people have to make an ethical decision that also involves money, it starts to become very difficult to make that ethical decision towards the right side of things. Mm -hmm. It does. I personally don't think that biologics like vaccinations should be legally sold anywhere except by the people that are trained to administer them. That That's my opinion. But if you live in a place where it is legal and you take that responsibility of you're stocking this item, you also have to take the responsibility to stock it correctly, make sure that it's handled correctly, put it in a flipping refrigerator, and provide guidance, i.e., we don't recommend you do this without veterinary supervision. Veterinary supervision means like, You've talked about when the pet needs to be vaccinated because like people don't know. Mm -hmm. People are dumb. They think like, well, I got the one shot from the feed store, so I'm all set. And they don't understand things like immunology. I mean, it's super complex. Like, yeah, you know, your Uncle Joe who posts on Facebook does not understand immunology unless he studied it. So like, let's not take his advice about the puppy vaccine schedule. Same with your breeder. Most breeders have not gone to vet school. People have the impression that breeders have tons and tons of dog medical knowledge. JJ, get ready. Get ready for the storm of hate mail. Are you ready? Um, I I can't I can't bring myself to really care because the whole okay. I'm so I'm so done with breeders and their okay. veterinary <laughs> degrees that they got from Walmart. Okay, so you're <laughs> what you're saying is you're you're prepared for the deluge of hate mail. Um, I just need I a guess from you. I'm ready. I might learn some origami because let's do it. Okay, I'm ready. You ready? <laughs> ready. Breeders, 
are not trained medical professionals. Nope. Unless they've been to veterinary school and also happen to breed dogs. Unless they've been to veterinary school and completed and graduated. <laughs> Correct. Asterisk. That is rare. I don't know many veterinarians who breed dogs. Mm. I mean, I don't know any veterinarians who breed dogs, right? I can't think of a single one. But anyway, if they do, okay, then listen to that breeder because they're a vet. But otherwise, putting two animals together in a room until they have sex does not give you, like, qualifications to then make medical recommendations for the offspring of the two pets that had sex. No. And that goes for a slew of other things, like... Boom, that's real talk. (laughs) Just say no. Just say no. Actually say yes. Say yes to actually getting medical advice from your veterinarian. Yes. Come on. And no to feed stores and breeders. Jeez. Oh, anyway, buy feed from the feed store. It is in the name. Mm -hmm. It's not the vaccine store. Anyway. Okay. We're done. We're done. We're closing it out. We're closing it out. Yeah. Bring it back around. So (laughs) the opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and not (laughs) reflect. And they're freaking right (laughs) yeah and not reflective of any other person that we might be blah 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 anyway (laughs) they're not reflective in any way of the opinions of these fine sources that we got some material from okay here we go so some sources that i found super helpful and this is a short list i actually have a crap ton of sources for this episode we're going to post them in the episode notes i could not read them all because it would be 30 minutes We're not going to do that. So I'm just going to hit the high points. Really good articles. Really good things. Include the canine viral enteritis chapter of infectious diseases of the dog and cat, fourth edition, published in 2012, written by doctors Green and DeCaro. The Vencyclopedia of Diseases entry on canine parvovirus infection, last updated in April 2018, and that's compiled by doctors Carrie Rothrock and Linda Schell. A study, The Effect of Early Enteral Nutrition on Intestinal Permeability, Intestinal Protein Loss, and Outcome in Dogs with Severe Parvoviral Enteritis, published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2003. That's volume 17. The authors were Drs. Moore, Lishowitz, and Jacobson. And that might also be Jacobson, but I'm not sure. So either way, (laughs) sorry if I've mispronounced your name. I tried really hard. And then also the IDEX website. So on the IDEX website, there is the SNAP Parvo Test page. And on it, there are links to things like the product insert and resources, including the FAQ that we talked about several times during this episode. Um, that's available to anyone. Please see the show notes for a full list of sources. So we would uh, like plead and request that you send us submissions, case submissions, Cute story, funny story, entertaining story submissions. Or cases. Cases, yeah, any any submissions. Um, and we would greatly appreciate it. We look forward to it. We like to read your things. Yeah, and where are they going to send it? They're going to send that to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and we'll be looking out for it. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.